Welcome to another segment of BuddyCast. Folks, we got a special treat for you today. I saw a video of this woman doing juggling, and I was like, I almost dropped everything in my hands. So I give you my new buddy, Cindy Marvel. How are you doing today? Hello, fine. I'm very happy to be here performing, as it were, again in another way. Happy to have you. So let me start out by asking you, how'd you get into juggling? Well, I started in a really unassuming way. My father, who is an unassuming, though quite a genius in uh, math and physics professor at Columbia University and Barnard College, he was there really all my life, and he still does research there and publishes with colleagues. Uh, he's in his 80s now. But back in the day, he would take out three objects and juggle. Really, he was juggling these little balls. Some of them were at my grandmother's house or tennis balls around the house. And he could also balance a broom or a tennis racket. And he was known to do these feats at the Columbia physics parties, which were like down in a basement where a lot of the physics stuff is stored. He used to take me to the laboratory there to witness mild experiments like people drinking helium or playing with dry ice and I would solder things. And so um, uh, it was kind of a quirky side of his life that he knew how to juggle but he was not trying to pursue this at all as a professional performer or an advanced juggler. So he really didn't know how to teach juggling the way a lot of us do. He didn't know about the exchange or scarves or breaking something down. And so he actually never taught me and he'll say that, uh, but he influenced me to be drawn to it. And through watching him, it took me years, but I ultimately was able to figure out how to juggle three balls and how to do the three tricks he could do. And if you're a juggler, as I, gather a lot of people watching are, that would be the cascade, the basic pattern, a two-in-one pattern, like the double mint gum commercial, if you remember that, and a shower pattern, which is throwing the balls in a circle. Yeah. Uh, often the one people understand best and try first, and yet it turns out to be the more difficult one. But I was lucky because those three tricks he did were what I came to define as the three families of juggling. So all other tricks you could trace back to one or two of those tricks, that it would be the derivation of these tricks. And so if you were to do an integral and go backwards, you could deconstruct a trick and find these tricks, elements of these tricks at the root of that variation. And so from there, I would meet other jugglers and that's how I got into juggling. They would take time to teach me, coach me, and mentor me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like I how you said they it. were just volunteering, and then I studied with some professionals. Yep, I like how you said it all stems down to like three patterns or so. You know, the two main patterns. It's one of those arts. You know that you always have a base that is right there. It's not just like something you have to create up on the spot or something like that. You know. Right. And even with site swap, they all have elements of those tricks. Mm -hmm. How long did you say, how long did you, did you think like it took you to really perfect it, to really get to like where you are today, for example? Right. Well, this long. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go on my Facebook page for more detail on it. No, um, I uh, really made a lot of advances as a juggler when I was in college, but when I was a teenager, I could do five balls and four clubs pretty well and with tricks and stuff. So I wasn't the average juggler getting into it in college. Um, 
like a lot of people, I got into it starting when I was 12, 13. And as a teenager, I was throwing balls around before that. I should mention my grandmother on my father's side also taught me some moves she knew as a girl growing up where you bounce balls in a certain rhythm and do, as it were, tricks like this. Um, and uh, like girls would do in a playground back in the early 1900s, I guess. And uh, as we know, Diablos were common actually a bit before that, back in 1910. Um, and hoop rolling. And actually some of those things were more done by girls then. Uh, so it's interesting how that filtered into it. But really I didn't learn three balls until I was in eighth grade and wanted to perform in a talent show. And that gave me the goose to get on with it already and figure it out <laughs> and do it. And I also walked on stilts as a Oh, we lost for a moment. Ah, uh, the last thing and, I heard was walking on still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, back at the time I'm talking about, we didn't have jugglers on YouTube and all of that. So it was very, each thing was a big deal. It was a big deal if you found out where to get clubs, nobody knew. If you found out where to find a book on juggling, you know, there were only a few things and they were very hard to find. Like only professionals knew about them. You went to your library and asked for a book about juggling, they probably would have said, what are you talking about? You know. Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, so uh, it was a real adventure finding out about it. Uh, but that adventure continues, and it's actually on the list of answers to some of the questions you had brought up about <laughs> juggling and advice I have and so on, um, is to embrace that journey and enjoy it, meeting the people and so on. It's the best thing in juggling. And it's what makes it real beyond the performance. You have a real adventure that goes on. One book about juggling that I recently uh, found again and enjoyed reading, Lord Valentine's Castle by the very renowned uh, science fiction writer, Robert Silverberg. You can look up his many books and awards and so on. But this one book has characters who are jugglers and they're performing jugglers in a troupe. And so it goes behind the scenes of what it takes to do that. And this one character who learns juggling as an adult and didn't know he was going to do that and then gets into it and has a very exciting fairy tale type adventure. So I'd, I'd recommend that for a, a juggling journey. And I think even people who are born into show business and know that's what they're going to do in Circus or Vaudeville had some of that adventure in their life as well. Um, and certainly have since because of all the conventions and jugglers and festivals and the world of juggling within itself. And this broadcast would be a part of that. Mm -hmm. uh, we've made our own world largely. It's not like a corporation came in and set all this up, right? Or wealthy donors or something like that. We really did it ourselves in juggling to create a field and a world with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and contained, you could either say outside or within that world is the world of performance juggling that springs from that. Uh, so that being said, uh, to more specifically say how I went from point A to point B, is, as far as technical juggling goes, I was in a training program that was an all-around theater program involving Michael Motion, Bob Berkey, and Fred Garbo teaching a variety of skills. And then... Uh, in college, I really wanted to expand my practice. And so I decided to practice two hours a day, which was a bigger practice commitment than I had the time uh, or skills for really in high school. And so that that really cemented my juggling. That's when I learned seven balls and five clubs 
and things like balancing while juggling that were very difficult for me to do. A lot of the work I did later I could do because of what I did in college, even especially my first year in college, because that's when I started making the commitment to spend more time at juggling. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now you mentioned books. You mentioned like you learned from your father. Are there any other role models that you like uh, modeled your career after or who you've been influenced by? In juggling, there are many. I mean, some of them are just jugglers you're influenced by, like the films of Bobby May were influential to many because he was a club juggler who put movement in. I felt in a different way than running around a circus ring. He was lunging and moving from within more. And uh, I already mentioned Michael Motion, who was influential to many, and I had the opportunity to take his classes. So he was really helping me with my juggling. Uh, also, Tony Duncan, I took classes with in high school. That was before we both won the IJ competition. Uh, and um, I knew who the really advanced jugglers were. Now, that being said, those were sort of official coaches who I signed up to study with. There were hundreds, perhaps thousands of jugglers who were responsible for informally coaching me. And part of that was that I started as a teenager and a young juggler. And so I was there to be mentored and there weren't so many people my age. So jugglers kind of thought that was cool. (laughs) And uh, I would, for instance, my freshman year of college, I put together this plan to apprentice myself to a couple of juggling groups. I was inspired to do that because we had a winter term project for such things. And my roommate was into knitting and crocheting professionally uh, at times. And so she was apprenticed to a weaving enterprise in Wales. And so I thought to myself, well, why can't I apprentice myself to some jugglers? (laughs) And so I remember Bill Gitt is helping me with some contacts towards this end. He, at the time, was the longtime editor of Juggler's World Magazine, and by the way, mentored me in that career writing about jugglers, which at one point led to writing some New York Times articles. He got me to do that because he knew that I was an English major and he felt like I was one of the people who could cover the field and do that partly as a service to jugglers. And Bill Gitt has recommended a couple of groups to try and they took me in as an apprentice. Uh, those, Those were the give and take jugglers. Dave Gillies, one of them is still very active. You can see his amazing tightrope walking on Facebook. I didn't even know he did all those skills at the time. Uh, And at the time, Give and Take were themselves sort of apprenticed to the Philadelphia Opera Company to do some juggling in the Barber of Seville. So I got to know that opera pretty well, hanging out and seeing the opera singers just step up and sing their parts. I always thought that was kind of amazing to see, although my parents were also into music and that type of singing. But just seeing how they would do it on cue within this blocking and everything kind of amazed me. Uh, And then the other troupe I was apprenticed to was Gravity's Last Stand out of Washington, DC. And uh, very sadly, one of the leader of the group really, Bill Fry, died in recent years. Um, uh, The group at the time also included Rich DiGiovanni, who was a hat juggler and kind of all around performer with juggling and Sandy Brown, who was one of my role models actually as a female juggler. Because while I was known as having some higher technical skills than some, there were many people out there performing. And I was known for being like a lot of technical jugglers, a bit more challenged by the performing side. Like if it hadn't been for juggling, I probably wouldn't have thought to be a performer. 
I took music classes and ballet classes and stuff, but I didn't really think I would actually perform those things professionally. And so that was what you did with juggling. Um, you went out and performed. And I wonder now that we're so electronic, if people are actually, aside from the pandemic, getting that as much because somebody said, well, now everybody just looks up a tutorial online, but that when I was learning, you encountered performers and <laughs> hung out with them in their world. And through teaching you juggling, they were also teaching you performance because there they were. And so it wasn't a disembodied thing online. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now I got to ask, what is the most unique thing you think you've ever juggled? Actually, yeah, I did think about that. Um, well, some memories I have, uh, aside from the rather obvious tennis ball and an egg or something, tennis rack or something like that. Um, I used to have this umbrella hat when I was in high school. I would do some street shows with this, and then I got to pass the umbrella hat. So I thought that was a good idea. Uh, I used to work at the theme park Kings Island in Cincinnati. Mm. Actually, after I was there, David and Scott Kane were there juggling performers and historians of note. And the people at the park had these rental, or, or I think they were free, uh, baby carriages they would go around with. These things were rock solid, okay? They were really heavy. <laughs> I don't wanna make this sound impressive, <laughs> any jugglers. And, but everybody had the same one because they would hand them out. So if you could do one, you could do them all. And my volunteer act was picking a volunteer who would hand me clubs while I was balancing one of these things and juggling. No baby in it. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm actually the party who talked Hedrick Smith out of a concept he had. He had some really good ideas about this TV show I was in called Juggling Work and Family, a PBS special. I did this with Carter Brown, uh, my husband at the time and, and performance partner. And uh, he had wanted me to juggle a baby doll to show a housewife sort of balancing all these things with work and family. And I said, well, I don't think that's such a good idea because what if you catch it the wrong way, people are gonna write in and say, you know, this is a bad example. <laughs> so, so I came up with a way to juggle while sort of holding the baby doll mm -hmm. before I had an actual baby. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, then, um, uh, the uh, artistic side though of things I felt um, was if you could come up with an object more the way Michael Motion was doing. So it wasn't so much about just juggling a regular household object. Although in vaudeville, there was a big tradition of that. And they did, they made those objects like vases or coat racks into uh, really highly technical juggling props. And clubs, I was thinking uh, yesterday only became really so popular mainstream I don't know, maybe in the 1950s or so. Um, but uh, I am very proud of an act. I'll actually show you if I can do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you see, I I didn't even know I didn't even know this was a live broadcast because that's <laughs> how how dated I am. I see this thing with a stream yard. I figured it was a iPod, a pod. <laughs> radio or something. Yeah. Okay, so these are some drums. Ooh. And I do an act called drumble. And this involves rolling balls inside these drums or mm. bouncing them off the drums. And you can do this with any combination of a number of balls. For instance, you could have three balls in one drum or one drum and two or three balls, or you, that's the same. You could have two drums. <laughs> and one ball. 
for instance, and wonk the ball around in different ways. And you can see some examples of this act as it manifested itself in a group after I was playing around with it solo. Uh, uh, I did it with Darn Good and Funny, the former team champions of the IJ. We did an act with it. I did it with Laser Vaudeville. I was very interested in using that for their theater pieces. And uh, also uh, we collaborated with Luke and Ilka of uh, Luca Luca in a five person act. And some of these are on my website at cindymarvel.com. And what, what's interesting about it though, are that I was trying to come up with, and a lot of people who tried it, everybody who tries it comes up with some moves that haven't been done before. So it was a wide open way to combine some traditional passing patterns with some atraditional concepts. <laughs> that was beautiful. I'm interested. I'm interested in seeing the balls bouncing off the drums. That would be fun one day. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I still practice it on my own, but it's best when I have a group and we can toss the drums back and forth. Mm. It's very no, yep. I gotta get this question out of the way. I ask this to a lot of performers that come on the show. How has COVID impacted your business thus far? Well, it's a vast wasteland. That's what they used to call. Uh, I think American television or air conditioning or such. Um, but uh, the T.S. Eliot line. Uh, you know, everyone's trying to figure out what to do. Case in point, what we're doing here today. Uh, mm. This is a great time in a way to have something like the Circus Center, although we were impacted to the point that when the local county of Boulder declared a state of emergency because we're just outside the county in the city in the county. Mm -hmm. um, we decided to close because we were getting, you know, questioned by what, how can you stay open? And we, it was obvious we didn't want to make people feel uncomfortable. And so we closed totally. And then uh, we opened up around the time that other things opened up when they said that studios and gyms could open with limited numbers. Um, we tend to have more limited numbers at a time than those things anyway, because even if you have a bigger group, only so many people can do props or aerial or something like that at once in the space. Uh, and um, we are still not back to full steam, although uh, we had our main uh, aerial program returned with as many people about, but they split into two different times and things like that. Um, a lot of the jugglers and hoopers are still playing around out in outdoor meetings. And I think they're kind of enjoying that. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to wait till the weather changes to get those, those types of uh, performers back. Case in point, I was at juggling club all alone last night because I felt like it was important to do what I normally do and stay in practice and so on. And because I'm usually at the IJ, International Jugglers Association or the EJC, the European convention at this time of year, um, often I'm kind of do, getting outdoors more. I tend to reach my technical peak sometimes in the summer because it is warmer and my hands are more fluid. Mm. And uh, it's not the feeling that you have to warm up so intensely. Um, uh, it can be, so I find that I can retain skills till the next day more. So it's better for working on numbers and so on. But admittedly in the pandemic, I wasn't, doing it as much as I was, um, but I'm still trying to stay in it um, uh, and keep the same level of things. Um, and so I did a lot of online workouts and I was getting a little more motivated actually in the pandemic because I took some downtime before that 
I was still working at the circus center behind the scenes, but I, I kind of came to the point of, oh gosh, I've been doing all these workouts for so many years. I kind of just want to break from it. And so I got a little more out of shape and then I got back in and around the time I got back in the pandemic happened, but I was motivated. So in a way that was good um, because I could take advantage of what was happening and, and going outside and getting online and so on. But it's very sad to have the performance world blown away. I had uh, two gigs in particular cancel because they were kind of on the cusp of that pandemic time. One was at a college in Illinois and they were bringing me in again to the theater department. I'd done that gig before uh, with a performer, uh, a playwright uh, on the East Coast, uh, Russell Davis, who had set this up before and he had a special professorship there to direct student productions. This time around, I was going to be in the production. Actually, I was in it before, but I didn't play a part. I kind of wove in some juggling. Um, my role was to teach theater and dance students something they could do with juggling, even if they weren't jugglers to begin. And so we had hula hoops and all kinds of things that I would show them some theatrical things they could do uh, and do well enough to perform um, that way. Uh, using their theater skills. So it was too bad that that was scheduled to happen just when the same week that all the colleges and universities shut down. And when I saw that, I thought, it's a, they can't do this. But they were generous to pay us anyway. <laughs> um, uh, one group that didn't so much have the wherewithal, for instance, and I'll bet a lot of people had this experience, there's a town called Parker, maybe an hour away from Boulder. They have a festival called Parker Days, and I was signed up to do this through a theatrical agency. Uh, and uh, unfortunately the whole festival canceled and they didn't have the wherewithal to pay people in advance for something that didn't happen. I think colleges and universities and maybe some performing centers are the only ones who had that kind of act of God contract where something like that is seriously anticipated. Um, and so you can't be too hard on organizations who had to cancel and also weren't making anything. Um, and weren't really in the industry so much uh, to have those kinds of backups. Uh, so um, yeah, it happened to me. It happened to a lot of people who are more uh, steady performers right now on, you know, people working at theme parks or cruise ships or something like that. I even had a couple of top pros contact me and ask for advice about their contracts not happening. Mm. What advice did you give them? Well, hmm you know, to check and see if they had an act of God contract there that ought to be honored, you know, if it's a commercial mm -hmm. industry. Um, but obviously this was unprecedented. If companies are going virtually bankrupt, you know. Um, I uh, One thing I think is going to happen is that, as I said, it was hard on the Circus Center having to reduce our because we, we had built up a bigger team and had more going on and we're making more money to help us behind the scenes with circus center projects and aspirations um, and to recompense people for some of the time they put in behind the scenes and helping us. And um, it's all run by performers in the field themselves. So, you know, the person that you see writing a newsletter or cleaning up the multi-purpose room or putting out brochures or such, is also going to be a rather renowned circus arts coach or and performer also. So that's one of the special things about it. Uh, and uh, so it was hard to see all that kind of blown away. Um, and now, like I said, some of it's come back 
and some of it's not yet come back. Uh, the kids program might maybe when school starts, since some people will be going to school, I, I hope that ultimately the circus center becomes more useful to the community and more desirable as an outlet because there won't, you know, some things aren't capable of returning to that uh, so fast as we would be. So, um, uh, but the circus center is great because even if nobody else is there, like last night, I still had something. I want to put in work on it. I can put in work on it. Mm. Like, for instance, one group approached us about setting up a giant trampoline tent. Now, we're in an environmentally controlled area, so I don't know if the county will go for that. But the county was considering giving us um, uh, a different kind of zoning from residential studio to maybe educational vocational institution or something like that. And maybe this would fit into that we were hearing. So I don't know. But uh, it would also give us the capability to have some other things outdoors in the winter in a heated tent, which could be said to be better for COVID reasons this season coming up. Um, once people can't go outside all the time, I think we will get more people returning because uh, that won't be the way that you can solve problems anymore. And so I, I think that those pros who kind of just focused on their performance career <laughs> are going to be looking for other things to do. Um, like we, our group started the Circus Center primarily because we wanted a rehearsal studio, but we also wanted to branch out and diversify some and offer something to other performers of our experience um, that we thought was important to do. And uh, I think there are going to be a lot of people in that position who might have something to, who might, you know, get more into the idea of wanting to teach a workshop or attend an event in the field or organize something like what you're doing mm -hmm. who maybe wouldn't have been motivated when they could just rely on their performance gigs. Absolutely. It's always a good time to just step back and do those things, you know, do the things that like you just want to relax. That's why I created this. Yeah. Yes. So bringing in available talent, I'm hoping we can do some of that soon. Uh, I had fixed on Labor Day weekend to offer a virtual juggling festival for the Boulder jugglers mm -hmm. because we had to cancel our festival in June. Mm -hmm. And I think there's going to be some available talent out there mm -hmm. that's yeah. looking for a way to stay in it that never yeah. probably had to face that before. Definitely. Do you find it harder or easier to do a virtual show or? Yeah, well, I, to be honest, haven't had that much experience doing it so mm -hmm. far. I did one for the IJA, they had a club renegade, and I did some of my poetry and juggling routines. That's another chapter of my life. <laughs> it actually was another winter term project at Oberlin, and that's kind of how that got started. Uh, I had 30 of them at the time. It's the kind of thing where I'm like, don't move my head or it'll fall out. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Usually I just do a few of them. Uh, and actually I had some fun making a joke. Uh, I was doing the Tiger by William Blake. And also you may that know that one, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, and the juggling balls become the eyes of the tiger ah. as the routine goes on. And then uh, another one was the dagger speech from Macbeth, which concluded with juggling some daggers. <laughs> and... I said, you know, how many people have really wanted to bump off the leader of their nation? I don't want to say this in too direct a way. Mm -hmm. Not any particular leader or nation or anything mm -hmm. being construed from that. But just, you know, that feeling of, 
Yeah. <laughs> like in the tiger. Mm-hmm. Uh, fictionalized. Well, you might enjoy this act. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> of course, the act tells you why you shouldn't do something like that because it doesn't work out the way the Macbeth couple. Mm-hmm. They suffer the consequences of becoming so ambitious that they want to depose the king. Yep. Who in that case seemed to be a nice guy. Yep. I remember that story from high school. So it's really a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just wait it out. If it's a good regime, they're going to stay around. And if it's not, they're going to go out on their own. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you this. Have you been in any competitions, any like, uh, any like, anything national, anything like that? Yes, uh, quite a few, actually. Uh, Through the IJA, which is the only one that really organizes juggling competitions for someone like myself, there is an IRC now that goes to other countries, but that's for people who don't already have the IJA and they're generally in their home country, although it goes to Canada. The European Convention doesn't have this type of competition So when I was, again, in college, I competed at the Atlanta Association. They give out a groundhog juggling award on around February 2nd every year. And you can do a short act to music. And then you can do a slightly longer one at the IJ and they have a juniors competition that I did right before I entered college. I was 17. Uh, So I'd only been to one convention before to see the juniors. And it, it was a tough field that year. So everybody was who did it, who competed then became uh, professionals. Actually, the winner that year, I was fourth, was David Lee, who was the younger brother of Albert Lucas. <laughs> and Dana Tyson was very close to him in technique, although he was more a homegrown talent. Robbie Weinstein, was, uh, let's see, John Gilkey was also in it. Everybody became some type of professional later or, or went on to win different competitions. And then when I was 22, after college, I competed in, and won the Lucas Cup, which was a tremendous achievement and honor and one that I'm awed by and proud of to this day. When I see the competition now, I see how hard it, these tricks, it's like, oh, I can't <laughs> about doing such difficult things on a lighted stage and everything. And uh, then uh, after that, it was it's hard to do a big competition like that once you've already won. let's face it some people do it but um from time to time i think oh i've got an idea for an act but no i don't really think i'm up to doing that and then i would uh though get an opportunity to do the prop contest that dan holtzman initiated he's one half of the raspini brothers with barry friedman and uh it's a really nice thing to do because uh whether it was two or three minutes um it, the idea was to put in as many original tricks as you could um, and uh, have a preponderance of those if you could, um, in addition to making a routine with music and costuming and so on. And I've always been a fan of these uh, figure skating and gymnastics routines, partly because it's a good way to get educated as to how to put together a skill with artistry. Mm. Um, in juggling, you didn't always have the opportunity to do that. So ultimately I did in Laser Vaudeville have a daily opportunity to do these big theatrical pieces and everything. And uh, before that in the Pickle Family Circus or with dance theater groups in New York, um, 
but often the kind of performance I did was at a festival or it was outdoors or it was sort of a semi-street stage show that would have some comedy and volunteers and so on. Or it would be a gig, like a walk around or something where it'd be kind of watered down so you wouldn't have the opportunity to put together a start to finish kind of act that people would watch and think about. And uh, so I love putting together those acts um, it's sort of my solution to life's problems. I'll go out and put together another juggling act. <laughs> That's nothing to do with the problem being solved. Um, and so, you know, and even in recent years, I've done many of these acts. Um, uh, some of them a bit shorter, not all as, as much technique crammed in, but I, there's still plenty going on. Um, and some new skills, like with flow props, props I hadn't already put together a zillion routines. Because after a while, it's hard to, harder to come up with combinations you haven't done before. If you want to do something really different, I tend to recycle a certain number of combinations, partly because I've had the technical experience of making them work together. And so I know I'll have some reflex memory of this goes with this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, I forgot this question earlier. What do you think's the easiest and the hardest part of juggling? Hmm. Well, I think one of the hard parts is you have to figure out so much yourself, although that's one of the rewarding parts, in a sense, one of the best parts, but uh, being on your own with something, again, some people like that and benefit from it because it's also very social when people get together uh, too, ultimately, but it doesn't really begin that way <laughs> usually. Um, uh, so the hardest one, the persistence of having to sweat through these, these tricks that are very difficult, some of them, that if you're talented at juggling, one of the thing, reasons I thought that I was was that some tricks I would learn very quickly. It was like, whoa, how did I learn that so fast? I learned back crosses really fast. Like in a couple of weeks, I was doing it fluidly. I, I learned um, uh, the four club splits very quickly when I was uh, being coached by Tony Duncan. I remember one point he said he was gonna go buzz somebody up because he was up at a walk-in, walk-up loft uh, in Greenwich Village. and. Uh, I decided I was going to be doing the trick by the time he came back upstairs and I was, because I just had a feeling I can do this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so the, let's see, the, you said though the toughest and the easiest parts mm -hmm. of being a juggler. Well, one easy part is it reaches people very quickly. You know, mm -hmm. if you're out there juggling, somebody's going to go yay or get totally into it or ask you about it or want to try it very, very quickly you know, more than other things that maybe they've already had a chance to try or already made up their minds about or something like that. And this, this really reaches people that way. Mm -hmm. Now, outside of juggling, do you have any other hobbies that you like or any activities that you like to do? Yeah, um, uh, I do. And actually, I was kind of a hobbyist before I got into juggling in that <laughs> I did a lot of extracurricular things. So I was the person with this crazy after school schedule all the time, not in any one particular thing, but I would take ballet and music classes and all, I would try all these things. Um, uh, and uh, so, so I uh, also was into nature tripping as a camper and that's what led to my connection um, with the man I married, Carter Brown, because uh, partly he went to a similar uh, boarding school in Vermont that had these activities and he had some of his parents were into these and um, my parents weren't so much, but I got that through summer camp and uh, in the Adirondacks and would 
uh, at times in life not have much connection to that. But then when we relocated to Boulder, uh, like many people, that was part of the attraction. But the bigger part was the artistry here. There were other people doing creative things more than where we'd been based before. Um, and that led to us being able to start something like the Circus Center and have, have that going on. Um, the composer we worked with was here and so on. But, but there, it, you know, recently I've rediscovered how great Colorado can be. You can just drive off and do all the, every, you keep coming to one area that's more incredible than the next. When I was in Edinburgh at the Fringe, that's the map there of Scotland, mm -hmm. came back from that trip. Uh, I think it's actually a dish towel, but it's so cool I put it up there. Um, the Emerald Isle of the UK, you know, there's so many places like that. Uh, and, um, you know, if I have the opportunity, I know how to go on a hike or, you know, I'll, I'll swim in any kind of water that you can do. I recently found the Gross Reservoir, which is way up in the mountains, but near Boulder. It just takes a long time because you have to take these 10 mile an hour curves and everything. Um, a lot of circus hobbies I got involved in through the circus center, like aerial arts. I never thought I'd get anywhere with that because the strength and the flexible everything to pull up and everything is not like what you need in juggling. But um, uh, I got a lot further with it to where I could climb up there and do some tricks and straddles and so on. So there are some sort of things I consider hobbies, yet they're within the field. Something mm -hmm. like hoop juggling, I could learn well enough to put it into my juggling acts or something like that. Um, and uh, writing, something I got into different kinds of writing. Uh, I took a screenwriting program at Full Sail University. You can find it here online. Most of their courses are for people who want to do the technological aspects of filmmaking, like animation or sound engineering or set building or something very technical. But they have an online writing program in screenwriting. It also goes into TV writing, game writing, all these things. Um, and that was great for me in my imagination because I'd written so many articles about jugglers and performers then, uh, like profiles of people or I wasn't so into reviewing performances. I did a little bit of that. That's what my mother does actually in music. She's really the champion of reviewing and writing about the music performances and industry. Sadly, a lot of those events are canceled right now. So she has her own blog and everything she continues. Uh, but uh, so that was inspiring. Um, I have many relatives who were writers in one way or another. My grandmother was a published writer in many forms, including uh, playwriting. Her plays were produced on Broadway, science fiction writing. She wrote a sci-fi novel completely different from the plays uh, about a boy who has a perfect sense of direction. Mm. Uh, and some of these would be inspired by her family, but they were works of fiction. And I really wanted to test my imagination. One thing I did was my mom had gave me these old journals I'd written in school and they got into creative writing and I'd written a very exciting fantasy story. I was trying to see if I could write like a Wizard of Oz type story where somebody goes to another world. It, several things struck me about it that I hadn't remembered because I didn't remember it very well. And I reread this story. I was like 11 when I wrote it. <laughs> I describe a town that's exactly like Boulder. I'd never heard of Colorado or Boulder, I'll bet, at that time. Certainly not Boulder. Whether mm -hmm. I knew anything about Colorado, probably not. <laughs> Growing up in Manhattan, right? So mm -hmm. I, but it's got red rocks, this town. It just sounds like Boulder. It's got a mountain near a bus stop. It's like, just like Boulder. Um, and uh, that was odd. And then it leaves off at a really suspenseful point. It just, I never went back to it. 
went to a progressive school. Nobody made me finish it. <laughs> so I don't know what I was going to do. I do remember that I didn't know what was going to happen. And I sort of got to that point where it was a little difficult and dropped off, which again goes with my next one of your questions, actually. I can say something about that. So I thought um, when I was looking for projects to do after the film writing course ended, I actually wrote a sequel to the script that I had. It doesn't involve jugglers, but it does involve a hoop troop sort of on the outskirts of the story. Mm -hmm. And it involves uh, the energy politics of California, although it could take place in other places that have nuclear power plants and so on. Um, and a character who gets involved in a web of intrigue that she doesn't really understand because she's an artist and drawn into this uh, sci-fi story that ultimately has flying dinosaurs and things I didn't know would be in this story. <laughs> from inspired by this film program. And so it was then the, the uh, sequel involves more other planets. In fact, to get away from any association with Earth and people thinking that's my town, it takes place on a, in other planets um, entirely. <laughs> and <laughs> um, uh, but I decided to finish the story I started when I was 11. I haven't worked on it just recently. I should go back to it, but um, uh, there's that should word again. Uh, I definitely want to finish it because I feel like I could come up with it. So I'm just kind of making it up as I go along, like I did then, and something in the style of what I was doing. Mm. You have to let us know when it comes out. Yeah, it should be exciting. It's an exciting story. Mm -hmm. All Now, I always ask this question to any of my, who I call buddies that come on the show. If you could donate, if you could have our audience donate, to one charity of your choice, who would it be and why? Yes, good question, because I sometimes will give a little to a charity that's, I'm not gonna brag about these donations, but I did something to help you know, charities. Mm -hmm. um, I resonate with the causes about people trying to afford heating or food or something like that. Uh, but a couple of causes within our field of performance I think would be appropriate to mention. Mm -hmm. One is Clowns Without Borders, known to many. There was a group called Jugglers Without Borders that went to Nicaragua. I don't think that's a functioning entity today. But Clowns Without Borders has a lot of jugglers. One that uh, we worked with here at the Circus Center, Becca Smith, was a performer on that uh, tour. And they'll actually go to besieged countries where there are refugees and so on and perform for those kids and those people and teach workshops for them. And so it's very much people within our field that could use your donation to go out and do something that's very meaningful and that they there'd be no commercial entity hiring them to do that. So this is people who live in tents and on the streets and stuff and kids who don't have that outlet. Who knows, maybe one of them will get into it, right? Another uh, group within the field uh, is in Uganda that I know of specifically. And there are several groups like, there are a number of these now, but uh, Ronald is the uh, lead uh, leader of this troupe in acrobats and jugglers. Some of them even went to China and had a gig there, but the village they live in is like clay huts and stuff. Mm -hmm. They were hauling their own water. Um, I donated a, a small donation I made, was able to help them get a water pump so they didn't have to haul their water in the pandemic. Uh, I've sent them some equipment and so on. Sending equipment, some of it's still getting held up by that never made it there. We're trying to track it down um, through customs. It's hard to send anything right now, but they could use a financial donation. Sometimes you have to go through Western Union if you want to help them. Now, again, even a very small donation, they could buy books for their schoolhouse or they could um, you know, do something big 
with a very small amount, so any pennies, cents, dollars you send them, um, would be appreciated. And you can find the Ugandan circus troupe, Ugandan acrobats online. Uh, there are also several groups like that in Ethiopia. One of them is run by the juggler Sasina Wagainu, mm -hmm. who was in Circus Oz, and she was in King Kong 3. Now, here's something funny. I was actually in King Kong 2 as an extra. <laughs> Before I was a juggler, I was I had a friend who did showbiz, and I was doing extra work in films. I had an agent that would let me know if they needed, like, 100 people in a crowd. Mm -hmm. so that was... Uh, probably the more well-known film that I was an extra in. And, uh, but she, Sassina actually juggled in King Kong 3 as an adult. Um, but she started a circus school kind of like ours in Ethiopia. I don't call mine a school, it's a circus center. Different things go on there, including rehearsals. Mm -hmm. Hey, and now it's time for the ultimate buddy cast question. I always, I always end the show on this note. For anyone out there who wants to go into juggling, wants to go into performing, what is your ultimate advice to them? That was the hardest question that you asked me, actually. So mm -hmm. I thought about this and I came up with something. <laughs> it's the, what, oh, I had a, a, a name for it. Um, well, call it a function. Since we were on math before, the not sure function. If you're not sure about something, whether to say yes or no, mm -hmm. then say yes. In this context and spirit, uh, I actually came up with three categories of this. Um, if you're not sure whether to try out for a gig, then say yes and try out for it. See what happens. Get the experience of doing it. If you don't get it, they'll remember you next time. Actually, two very important jobs in my life, uh, the Pickle Family Circus and Laser Vaudeville. People are always surprised about that one. I auditioned for at some length, but didn't get the first time around. Although that's how they became interested in using me the next time around, a few years later. So you never know where those connections will lead if you try for something. And you'll get the experience of doing it. Uh, the other one, whether to take a job or not. That was another one I sometimes had to consider, a good problem to have. I had no problem going to Japan the first time because I was offered six weeks. Then I was offered six months and I was like, whoa, I'm gonna be away from New York, from my parents, from my massage <laughs> therapist, my aerobics class, all of that. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it. And I kind of agonized about it, but I did it. <laughs> and then that, uh, actually, there were later years where I couldn't do it, you see, because as, as a friend who was advising me then, Linda Pollock Johnson, she's the wife of my college professor, Bruce, Bruce Pollock Johnson. They're musicians and uh, jugglers who sometimes perform juggling. Mm -hmm. And she said, your life's going to get more complicated in the future, and you might not always be able to do these things. So you should do it. And I did. Um, and that was true because later when they offered me those contracts, I was on laser vaudeville and I couldn't, I actually didn't have the availability. So that was a memorable occasion where, you know, if you're not now, now if you know you shouldn't do something, it's okay to say no to things. If you know that's not the gig for me or I don't want to be away that long, if you know, it's okay to say no. But if you're not, if you're really not sure, that's okay to say yes. And that can open a lot of doors. Uh, then the third category I applied that to was actually learning new skills. 
like I kind of felt like I had to be really good at one number before I went on to the next. Cause that's how I did when I was in high school, I was really good at five balls and four clubs before I went on to five clubs and seven balls. But then I see a lot of people trying higher numbers and I kind of just never got around to trying it. Cause I was like, ah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's now that I'm not um, doing the numbers so much, although I still do them, what I, I can't really do seven balls as long as when I was practicing it, performing it every day. Um, but uh, I can still do it some. So, but I had a good pattern. I had like some of the best patterns around there in the smoothness and everything of the pattern. And so as well as the next person, I was ready to go on to the next thing and just try it out. So it's better if you're, you know, thinking about trying a skill, say, just try the skill. If you know you don't want to learn something and that's okay, but you know, if it's not dangerous, <laughs> not saying, you know, some skills out there are pretty dangerous. You know, if it's not dangerous, there's no reason not to try it, you know, go on and try it. Beautiful advice. All right. On that note, thank you so much for being part of BuddyCast. It was an honor, and I certainly learned a lot. Sounds like you've had some great adventures in your life. So. Yeah, and I'd also like to recommend for performers, especially now that we have the pandemic, two mm -hmm. networks I've been a part of uh, that are online that you can do. So just really quick, since we're out of time, um, the Barry Friedman Showbiz Blueprint Network is out there online, very easy to find a lot of performance and business coaching, especially the business, the behind the scenes coaching. Mm -hmm. And another one is Brad Ross. He's a magician who offers uh, online and in-person workshops on this. Mm -hmm. It's a good well, way to keep going and to have those skills and that experience uh, to keep going during a pandemic. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Great advice. Great, great support to offer afterwards too, you know, Everyone could use some coaching every now and then, especially now that you're stuck at home and wondering like, you know, what can I do with my time? Yes, because some of the coaching, a lot of it has to do with your home, your life organization, how you bring that together with helping you advance as a performer. Mm -hmm. All righty. Thank you once again for everything. <laughs> it was a joy to have you on the show. And to all my buddies out there, we'll catch you next time. But always remember, go be someone's buddy. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> we'll catch you next time here on BuddyCast.